So I'm not sure what they're saying here, but there's music here. So I'm not sure if I'm supposed to sing, but I'm going to pray for your sake. That is not what Chad had intended. Good morning. Man, what an awesome time of worship and praise. Let's come glorify the King of Kings. Isn't that just good? Um, This morning, I was uh, thinking about how to start this morning and uh, my kids are very, very excited about something that's coming. So I, I thought I'd, I'd hearken to that. This summer, uh, I don't know if you've noticed it, um, but they are doing a like new computer animated, it looks like real animals, but it, of course it's not, version of the Lion King. And so it's not drawings anymore. It's going to, you know, all the new computer technology. It's going to look like a real lion. And uh, my kids, of course, are real excited about that. They like that movie. But there's a line in that that just makes me think of today's Bible story. So if you remember the movie, uh, the, the king's son is, is in trouble. He runs off in shame, in exile, and then he's, he finally picks up the mantle again. He, he comes back to save the day. And uh, Rafiki, the, the, the kind of narrator of this whole saga, comes in and he says, the king has returned. And everything changes. That's, that's the, that is the point in the movie where everything switched. Now, I don't know what they'll do in the new movie. They'll ruin it if they don't have that line. But that line is, is the feel of today's text. Um, so if you haven't been with us before, we're going through the book of First and Second Samuel. And we'll eventually get through First and Second Kings. But we're in Second Samuel chapter 19. And the last couple of weeks, um, we've been talking about the the pain and the suffering and the tragedy that has happened in King David's life. So there's been a lot of things that King David has done right. He's called a man after God's own heart, but he was a pretty lousy dad. Um, at times he was, he was a hands-off dad. He just let his kids do some horrible things and just let that continue. He, he let one of his sons, just he pushed him away. And that son eventually staged a coup and uh, nearly toppled. David's government. Um, There was a great war. There was a civil war. And David's army has won. So that's kind of where we pick up today. And the way it ends is that David had told Joab, who was his general, when you go out and fight, when when you come to my son Absalom, spare his life. Spare his life. Show mercy to him. Joab Sure enough, finds Absalom, and it's, it's, it's almost a, a comical mocking scene. He's got lovely flowing locks, and he's riding along his horse, and his hair gets caught in a tree. Horse keeps going, he doesn't. And, and he is, apparently he used you know, some good conditioner, because it, it hung him by his hair. And so he's just laying there, and Joab comes up, and it says he took three spears, and he walked up next to him and just shishkebobbed him. And then his army goes crazy and and desecrates Absalom's body. So he completely ignores the words of David, and David is just broken. He's hurt. If you remember how how the sermon last week ended, Joe reminded us that David was praying for what Jesus did for us. That, That David said, oh, if only I had died instead of him. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. But But we come to this in 2 Samuel 19, and David's son is dead. And David is just mourning. David's still where he was at in exile. He's on the far side of the Jordan, which is the border of Israel. So he's out of Israel. 
They've won. Everybody knows it. And he's starting to return. He's coming back to take his rightful throne and set everything in order. And so pick up reading with me there in First King, or excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 19. It's on page 270. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to read a fair bit of this text. Um, it's on page 270. Feel free to grab that. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can read and understand, just take that one home with you. Uh, that's no problem for us. We've got lots of them. I have something that uh, came out of a request from a community group. And I think you'll see why, because this week's even worse than last week. There is a glossary of names that no one wants to pronounce on the back here. Um, so if you get like, okay, who, who did a what? It's on the back. Um, and so this is kind of specific to this week's, but um, hopefully it'll even help you in the next week. But, uh, and these kind of go in order as we're going to walk through this text. So they're not in alphabetical order. I, I, I'm better than, you know, B being at the end, Z being in the middle, but um, this kind of walks through our text with us, and we'll kind of give you the cheat sheet, so to speak. So 2 Samuel 19, again, it's on page 270, um, if you want to turn there, and we're going to read, we're not going to read this entire chapter, I'm going to tell you kind of the story to move through some of it, but I want us to get the feel of what's going on. This first part is, is a time of, uh, of grief and mess. And I want us to see um, what we can see. So kind of the structure, as you can see, there's no outline. That's because there's no outline. This is a text that, that just has these little nuggets here and there that we can pick up. And then at the end, we're going we're to look at the text as a whole and say, what does that say to us? So verse number one of Second Samuel 19 was told Joab, that's David's general, was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as the people steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. So rather than celebrating a great victory, this is the end of a civil war. So rather than celebration, they're, they're just grieved. Because the king, their leader, the one they were fighting for, is just broken down in a heap of tears. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is the third time this is recorded in Scripture. I don't know what it sounded like to hear David utter those words, but it apparently had such a great impact that, that when the historians that got inspired to write this down looked back, they repeated this writing over and over and over. I mean, it, it, there must have been something in his voice that, that just ripped them to the quick. So he grieved his rebellious son. In verse 5, Then Joab, the general, came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have today saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. He's probably going a little over the top here. David just did lose his son, but he, he's confronting what's going on. He continues on. For you made it clear today that the commanders and the servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you would be pleased. Again, Joab, he, he goes over there, but the message gets across to David that, that you've got to be king now. Yes, you lost your son, 
but you're king. Your country needs you. So verse 7. Therefore, go arise, and this is still Joab. Therefore, go arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. The king takes the advice. Then the king arose, he took his seat at the gate. So when you hear the king taking a seat at the gate, the gate was the equivalent of, of a throne room today. This is where they did business. This was the place of government. So they literally had a wall around the city and the gate. And, and so the king was monitoring who was coming in, who was coming out. That was the courthouse. So that's where they had a trial or something like that. It's where government decisions were made. So the king goes in and he starts acting like the king. Let's go back to verse 8. And the king arose and he took his seat at the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is setting in his gate. And all the people came before the king. Now, here's what's going on. David's starting to act like who he is. But I want you to see and not miss the little bit here. Joab overtly, general who overtly disobeyed the commander-in-chief. Now, what Joab did was probably wise militarily. He, he was probably being smart. He may have saved David's kingdom for him. If Absalom had still been alive, I mean, the people were with Absalom. He may have saved the kingdom, but he disobeyed the king. And so David is getting a message that's harsh and over the top from a general who just disobeyed a direct order himself. He didn't even have somebody else do it. He did it. He killed Absalom. So he's grieving his son, the guy who disobeyed you and the guy who put a spear into your son walks up to you and gives you advice. David's got such a humble heart, he heard that advice. I, I'm going to guess that most of you, like me, would probably have not heard that advice very well. Do you see the humility there? Do you see the, the grace and what was in David's heart, and why he was a man after God's own heart. He was listening, even to the man who killed his son, even to the man who spoke harshly to him, even to a man who was overtly rebellious to him. He heard good advice, and he took it. That's a good little nugget for us, folks. We need to humble our hearts. Sometimes wisdom and truth comes from very unpleasant sources. Um, there's an old saying that the Lord can use a crooked stick. And I think this is where it kind of comes in. Sometimes we need to hear what needs to be said to us, even if the person presenting it to us, they don't present it well. Maybe even if students, kids... Maybe even if it's coming from your dad, who you know goofs up on this all the time, we still need to hear the truth. Because your dad's flawed too, just like you. We need to look at what happens there. We also need to look at what David does. Can you imagine the heart grieving your son? I know some of you in here know exactly what that feels like. That you've lost a child. You've lost a baby. You know what that feels like. And David, 
rather than continue his grief, which was completely reasonable on his part, he steps up. Philippians 2.3, I think, gets to the point. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. David, in his greatest moment of grief, perhaps, steps up, goes to the gate, and he does what needs to be done. He puts aside his emotions, his feelings, his grief for his son. And he sacrifices himself for others. Brothers and sisters, how much different would this church be if that's how each of us lived every day? I'm looking out and I'm seeing your faces. and I mean, my heart is warm to you, but how much more should I not be thinking about how can I get my, done, my day done and my work done? How can I help? My brother, sister, we've had several who've had surgery this week. We've got some coming having surgery this week. How much more would it be if I made sure I grilled a little bit of extra meat and ran that over to them? So I didn't have to worry about that. I offered to go clean their house. Whatever it might be, just giving them a call. David was a man after God's own heart one way because he was humble. He sacrificed for others. Now let's keep going down through this scripture. So the, the next thing is verses 9 through 15. And, and there's a lot of detail. We're not going to go through it. You can you trace through this tonight. If you haven't read this passage, go through it. But 9 through 15, David basically begins to exert authority over his kingdom again. He's, he's again acting the king. He gathers people together and they start murmuring, well, the priest haven't said that you're the king again yet. He has two of his best friends who he's left in Jerusalem, they're spies. He left them there as spies and they haven't come out and said, oh, you're the king again. Priests are who anointed kings. They are the people that said this is the king. So he calls the priests, they're his friends, and they come out and they recognize their king. Um, He gets to the point he's doing what he needs to do. And there's a couple points in this where he says, do this. He exercises not hard authority, but strong authority. And I think there's, again, something here we need to see. Um, Romans 13.1 talks about that there is no authority that God himself hasn't given. And he's talking about a crazy government at that time. By the way, a crazy government that often killed Christians just for being Christians. So he says, submit to that authority. Recognize that authority. Pray for them. Pray for it to be peaceful. But we submit to that authority. And so I I think we need to see as people, again, we need to look at ourselves and make sure that we don't buck against authority just because it's authority. That's our culture. I mean, that, that is what it is to be American sometimes, it seems like. But we need to make sure we have humble hearts. And when there's authority being exercised and it's appropriate authority, it's, it's genuine authority, we follow. But we also need to not be afraid when we are in a role of authority, whether that be in a church leadership, a leadership in the home, leadership at your companies, to exercise authority properly. Not mean, as Jesus said, not lording it other over people. Not, <laughs> do what I say. But humbly, as a servant, being strong. Exercising authority. That's what David did. 
Now, I want you to skip down with me. We're going to pick back up in verse 16 to, to one of these times where someone's coming to David and, and he shows us how this kind of authority is exercised. Now, I need to give you a little backstory real quick. The next person to come to David is Shimei. Shimei. It is a monster. There's way too many vowels, not enough consonants. Shimei. And he's only mentioned once in the Bible. And it's when David was leaving to go to exile. He's up on a hill. David's walking through the valley. You know, they've got a big crowd. They're, they're walking all the people out. David's loyal army to him and, and his family, his, his stuff. And then, so they're walking the pass of least, least resistance down in the valley. And this guy gets up on a hill. And he is literally throwing rocks at them and screaming at the top of his lungs every slur and slander he can come up with. He, I mean, he's, David, you're an idiot. David, you're stupid. David, you are a terrible king. You've ruined it all, and you're getting what you deserve. And Joab, same guy, comes up. It's like, I can pop that guy. We can take care of this. All right, I'm, I got the arrow. And David says, no, just, just let him go. Just let him go. So they walk out. And so we're, we're a few months later, and verse 16 picks up with this same guy. So look with me again in verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, from Bahurim, hurried to come down to the men of Judah to meet King David. And with them were a thousand men from Benjamin. So he, he brings some, some folks. Zeba the servant of the house of Saul and his 15 sons and his 20 servants rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford over to the king's household. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. By the way, that is an excellent example of how to repent both before God and other people. He says what he did. He knows he's guilty. He said, I did wrong, and he, and he pleads for forgiveness, for mercy. Do not let the king take it to heart. Verse 20. For your servants know that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down and meet the Lord my king. He's just fallen before David. 21. Abishai, this is a, this is a this is just a boss in the army. I mean, he goes out. He's he's killed three hundred men in a battle by himself. I mean, he's just big dude, strong macho guy. I mean, he he's that guy, you know, Rambo type guy. Abishai, Abishai, the son of Zuriah, answered, "Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed?" But David said. What have I to do with you? In other words, what in the world? Who are you? Get out of here. What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? By the way, that's his sister. It's Joab, Abishai, they're, they're brothers. These are his nephews. That you should this day be as an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not, for do I not know that I this day am king over Israel. He knew who he was. He knew his authority. He didn't have to go around and kill everybody to prove a point. Verse 23, look at this. And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. This isn't the French Revolution where the people got power and they killed everybody that could threaten it. 
David comes humbly. He's a man who's been touched by the hand of God. And he knows how much for which he's been forgiven. And so he comes, and he comes to Shimei. And David forgave the man that hit below the belt at his weakest moment. He forgave him. Shimei didn't deserve forgiveness and mercy. David's friends told David not to give him forgiveness and mercy. But David chose to follow God's way. Uh, Listen to this conversation between Jesus and Peter. 1,500 years later. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times seven? Excuse me, as many as seven times? So in other words, Peter's coming up. He's thinking, you know what? I want to be a real spiritual person. My brother comes up and does the same thing to me seven times. I'll forgive him. He's trying to be like hyper-spiritual. Because you know, nobody would come up and do the same. You know, nobody punch in the face seven times think they're going to get away with it, right? But listen to Jesus' reply. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77, or some translations put it seven times 70 times. In other words, he said, if you can count, that's too few. You're not there yet. I don't want to make light of the tragedy that struck some of your lives. I don't want to just say as a quick band-aid, oh, forgive them. Because there's deep pain and hurt and grief, and I know that. Some of that's still going on. We can certainly talk more offline about what it means in hard cases. But even in those hard cases, the bottom line is the Scripture way. Christ's way is for you to forgive them. For you to not hold that wrong against them. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean emotionally feeling all happy, giddy, and, you know, hugging. I mean, it doesn't talk about David going, you know, giving Shemaiah hugs and them being best buds for life or anything like that. But he canceled the debt. He said, I, I give you my word. I'm not holding this against you. Some of y'all need to do that. You're holding on to stuff. You're bitter. Some of you need to forgive like David. Uh, But catch the why. Catch the why in the New Testament. Jesus talks about the reason that we can forgive, we not meaning he and us, meaning us, the reason we can forgive is because Jesus first forgave us. Our debt to Christ, of our sins, rebellious, hateful, The Bible describes us all as adulterers, that we have, we have gone astray. I mean, it uses very harsh words, like prostitution-type words to describe us. That's what we have against God. The Bible describes it as enmity. We, we are enemies with God. And Christ came to us. He died for our sins. He rose again, and He offers us forgiveness when we trust Him in faith and repent. We turn to His ways. And so He says, if I've done that for you, you're to personify, you're you're to put that into flesh for the people around you. We've been talking a lot about evangelism. Joe mentioned the book. This is evangelism. This is how it gets worked out in our daily lives when we don't act like People who don't know the Lord. We forgive rather than holding it against someone. 
again, I don't mean to make this an easy thing. It's, it's easy to say. It's easy to prescribe. It's very hard to do. But this is the call. So next, again, people just start kind of coming to David in waves now. The next person who comes up is a man named Mephibosheth. Okay, Mephibosheth, again, backstory, was Saul's grandson. Saul, first king of Israel, his son Jonathan. Jonathan and David are best friends. Jonathan's killed in battle with Saul. David goes looking, is there anybody left from his family I can just show honor to? And they find Mephibosheth, who's the, the last living relative of Saul. And Mephibosheth is, is severely disabled. Um, when they were running away from an enemy, uh, his nanny was carrying him and fell and, and crushed his legs, his lower extremities. Um, so we, we don't exactly know if he was, he was on crutches, he, he was in, you know, being carried around on a, on a litter or something, but he, he was severely disabled. And David, as opposed to what people did back then, treated this man with dignity. He, he loved this man. He, he brought him to his table. And as a matter of fact, he was more of a father to Mephibosheth than he was most of his own sons. And when David's leaving, this servant named Ziba, we just read his name a little bit ago, it, he, was Z, he was Mephibosheth's servant. He was kind of the, the, the household manager for this guy. He ran the farm comes to David and said, Mephibosheth, he's run over to the other guy. He's hoping for Absalom. He wants to get it all back. And and he has rebelled against you. And I'm here to help. And this was apparently an outright lie. It was a fabrication. Ziba took Mephibosheth's donkey. And Mephibosheth is disabled. He literally couldn't get out to David. Mephibosheth, it says he hasn't washed himself. His hair's long, scruffy, nasty-looking beard. And he comes out to David, I'm so glad. And David restores to this man his dignity and treats him like a human. He treats him just like all the other men who come in this. He restores his full dignity. So think with us just a little bit. How could we share the gospel? How could we be Christ-like this week? By going out to the people who, who are looked down on, who, who aren't the ones who fit in society. Whether that be a disability, whether that be a special need, whether that be poverty, whether that be a place someone's from. And we give them their full dignity as a person made in the image of God. That's what David did. We've got one more we need to, to kind of highlight. This man, he's called Brazilii. I mean, we got some good ones here. Brazilii. We have no clue who this dude is. He's just rich dude. That's basically all we know about him. And it's, we find out through this story that he had provided for David's family, David's army. He gave them provisions. He just took care of them while David was in exile. And he comes back and he is just celebrating with David. They are excited. They've had so many, I'm sure, times bawling and crying over what's happened in this coup that was attempted. And now, David's won. David's king again. And Brazilii comes back and says, this is wonderful. And David said, a matter of fact, let me do something for you now. You help me let me make you my, my vizier. I mean, you're going to be my number two guy. And this man says, you know, I'm old, David. 
I won't live that much longer. I'll actually probably be a burden to you. He says, let me just go to my home. I'll just have a few years left. But take my son. Teach him how to be like you. And David does exactly like that. He, he takes his son in and he makes him part of his court. And he raises him up to be a future leader. I wonder how many of us will get to that place like this man, where we can say, you know, fame, riches, glory, power, eh, God's let me have a good life. Praise God for that. I'm good. What, what an awesome witness. Again, read through this. So the, the final thing of this chapter, and I know we're, we're coming in like, it's like a little story, little story. We'll, we'll put it together here in just a minute. But the final little piece to this is what begins to happen in Israel. So David's from the tribe of Judah. He's from a place called Bethlehem. You might have heard somebody else from there. You know, Christmas story kind of thing. And, and so he is from an area. Then they have, There's 12 tribes. And the people from Judah come out. And like, he's our dude. He's our dude. So they are the first ones to get there. They're also the closest. Kind of works out that good. He's about to come back into Jerusalem. And the 10, like the other 10 tribes send their representative and say, ah, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. There's ten of us, one of you, he's our king. Like, we got ten shares, you just got one. Why, why do y'all get in the privileged state? And it, it actually says that the, the people from Judah spoke back, and they literally won the argument by being so fierce and mean. It doesn't say they were right. It just says they were fierce. They were, they were harsh. And this, this is just jockeying and yelling match, trying to vie for power. And, and then... David walks back in. And the reason I say that, the reason I want to end this, is, is I want us to get that this was a real-life kingdom. We look back on these Bible stories, and we think there's no politics going on. There's none, you know, it couldn't have possibly been like what we see, you know, where you got different factions arguing in a country about maybe what should be done. I mean, that's never happened in our lifetimes, I know. But it did back then. And you know what? There's a period at the end of the chapter chapter 20 picture right back up it's not that there weren't consequences to this this is kind of the the brooding beginnings of the kingdom splitting which happens under solomon and but we need to see god was working this whole thing he's not stressed out david doesn't go into panic mode because people are arguing and literally having shouting matches over who's whose king is he David didn't even need to get the last word in. David doesn't even speak to this. He doesn't even recognize it happens. I mean, how often have we seen the thing on Facebook and had to have the last word? How often have we seen that thing and we just have to say something to make sure people understand where we're really at? Or how many times has it been in the meeting and we've got to have the last word? You know, God's got this. Politics has been going on and it's been two-party politics and messy and ugly and ridiculous at times and people yelling and screaming at each for literal millennia. And the sun comes up every morning. And the king took his throne. And finishes out his reign. Just be comforted in that. 
maybe be challenged by that. Maybe you're the one who needs to, you know, sometimes people can say something stupid and I not have to correct it. Even if you are right, it's okay. It's okay. So what in the world, why in the world are all these weird stories in the Bible? That's where I came to. So last week, it was kind of like this, this week. Next week, like, there's literally people's heads being thrown over walls. Okay, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? And I want to bring this back together and see, what is the picture? What's the story here? And I started by talking about the Lion King, but I, I want to go to a different media for just a moment. Something much better, much longer, much more complete and Christian. I, I want to turn back to Tolkien, probably my favorite author, my, certainly my favorite nonfiction author. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, he, he was a godly man, a professor at Oxford. It was, he was at the Wright School in England. Um, and... He, he had this ability to capture people's hearts and minds with a story. He, he could tell a story like nobody else. And as he and his friends, you know, nobody's like C.S. Lewis, folks like that, would, would walk through Oxford, they would literally wind through the park, which is a gorgeous place, huge, huge park, and walk through the sequoia trees which only grow on two places on earth, California and Oxford, because it's so wet and, and so humid. And they would see trees and they would see beauty and they would, they would see cricket matches out there and, and, and wonder what it might be like to, to live in these forests. But Tolkien saw something more. He saw the hearts of people And he saw how he could use things like giant trees to describe how we were. And so he took fables and myths and he spun them together and he created this thing, this series, this trilogy called The Lord of the Rings. He wrote these books and and he didn't, it wasn't, the Lord of the Rings isn't like what C.S. Lewis wrote with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan is Jesus and this is this. And it wasn't like that. He, He had this ability that I think is maybe even greater literarily to not just tell a one for one story, but to tell a story that grabbed our hearts and got to the the meat of things. And in case you're not familiar with, if if you've been deprived and you had a horrible education, and haven't read those books, let, let me give you the, the overview. And by the way, I mean that very genuinely. Um, if, if you haven't had that opportunity, read these books because they, they get to the heart of people. But, but the overall story is, is there's this great evil out there. And the reason this great evil, it's always been there, but, but the reason it takes hold and is destroying what he calls Middle Earth and some other, other time of our land, it, the reason it takes hold is because men are greedy. We're constantly selfish and greedy. And we think of ourselves and we want, and I want power, and I want this, and I want this, and I want that even more than I love my brother or sister. And so we jockey and we fight for power. And that greed and that selfishness takes over and it opens the door for the greatest evil possible. That evil in his books is a man, a being named Sauron. 
And Sauron comes and desires to rule all. And to defeat all good and bring darkness. Because that is his domain. And it is not until this little band of nobodies decide they will buck against the desire for greed, the desire for power, and they will sacrifice of themselves to defeat this icon of the ring that contains this evil being's power. And so they do, they sacrifice and the being's defeated. But the problem with Middle-earth is even though that great being was defeated, the books don't end there because the greed, the selfishness, the heart of man, as he puts it, was still there. We were still who we were. And that evil would just come back or take another form. And so the ending of those books, the, the title of the last of the three, is not totally about the defeat of the ring and the great evil one. It's about the return of the king. And the king, who's one of these men who, who sacrifices of himself, and he doesn't need this kingship. He's fully satisfied in and of himself. And he fully loves, and he's faithful to the woman he loves, technically elf, but you go, we'll get there. And, and he doesn't have to have the power. He doesn't have to fight for power because it's who he is. He's the rightful king. And so he is able to pick up the sword, the, the possession that only the rightful king, and he doesn't fight for it. He doesn't have to get it. It's his. And so when he becomes king, everything is restored. It took the true king to rule the hearts of humankind to keep the evil out and to change our life from greed and fighting and misery. And just as Tolkien illustrated so, so well 70 years ago, our humanity, real humanity, is broken. We're snapped and the best of our governments cannot fix it. Great men and women through history are nothing but the little boy plugging his finger into the dike. It's going to overflow. You see, history ebbs and flows, and it gets better and it gets worse, and it gets better and it gets worse. But the problem is not all that. It's all this. My selfishness and greed, and let's use the word sin. And only the true kings, the true king could do something about what is in the heart of of humankind, and He died for that sin, and He rose again. And we love to preach that. And you'll hear that in sermons across this country today, but there's something we tend to forget. And that's the return of the King. So again, don't get me wrong. If you're not yet a believer in Christ, if you're still exploring this, this is where you start by placing your faith and trust in the Christ who was killed for your sins, rose up again and lives to reign but the story doesn't end there. Kevin DeYoung put it something like this. We have a category for little baby Jesus. We get babies. They're cute and they're sweet. And there's hope with the Christmas story. Like, we get that. You know, we get 
a holy, righteous Jesus because we know what it's like to strive to be better and to be right and do right. So we get Jesus who can be that. We have a category for that. We know suffering, so we get someone who can suffer infinitely for us. We, we have a category for that. And we know death, so we can conceive and we can get excited about resurrection. But I don't know, as Kevin DeYoung put it, that we have a category for who Jesus is now and how he will return. He doesn't fit our cuddly, happy, cozy categories. We don't have a category for the return of the king. We don't know how to relate to Jesus who has bloody clothes, not from being stabbed in the side, but from stomping on his enemies. That doesn't fit Jesus. We don't know how to relate to total, complete, victorious, almighty God coming to be our king. We can't get that in our head. John Newton, he wrote Amazing Grace, all right? We all know Amazing Grace. It's warm, cuddly music, right? I mean, that's the song, it's got to be my favorite hymn. When I'm low, that's what I sing. I mean, how many often does that melody play in your head on the worst of times? That's what we sing at a funeral. That John Newton that brings us all the warm cuddlies. Here's what he said. He said, I was bewildered by Jesus, inked, he couldn't bring himself to say tattooed, on the strongest muscle of the human body, a name that tells everyone he is the Almighty. That's Revelation 19 that Bob read for us earlier. Turn with me there just, just for a moment. When then I saw the heavens open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. That's not our category for Jesus. Revelation chapter 19. We'll continue on with verse 12. I want you to look at this with me. Listen to how he's described. His eyes are like the flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, that's crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows by himself. In other words, that, that's a sign of power. No one can, can call down little Jesus. He's, he's got a name nobody even knows, so nobody can even call him down. He's clothed in a robe dipped in the blood. By the way, this isn't his blood anymore. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. These are victory steeds. Think of the Arabian horses, these big, monstrous, muscled stallions. This, This is Christians, folks. These are the people who have followed Christ. Verse 15, continued description of Jesus. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. I think this is a a figurative picture, but it, it may be visible literally. Who knows that his words are so powerful. It's like getting whacked by a sword. Only he doesn't whack a person. He whacks a country at a time. Do you catch how this is describing him? He speaks and he fights nations. Continuing on, verse 15. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the 
fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And that's that's the way he handles his enemies. He literally stomps them like a grape. That's a problem to Jesus. A grape. Verse 16. On his robe, so for everyone to see, and on his thigh, he has the name written, and it actually is is engraven, is the most literal translation. King of kings and Lord of lords. So outside for everybody to see, it's as deep as John Newton put it, inked on the most powerful muscle of the human body. It's as deep as it gets. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus we can't fit into our comfortable, nice world. You see, we, we, we have Jesus pictured as like the flowing lock, conditioned hair singer in a boy band, not Terry Crews. Jesus is a hoss. He, he is the king. And he's a big old warrior king. We tend to think of Christ's return. And we're so often worried about figuring out the puzzle. That in our pride, we miss the Savior who's coming. That's what Revelation is about, by the way. And any prophecy. It's not the details. Although we do need to stay that. We need to understand that. But, but the point is Jesus. And he is big and he is coming to take names. I mean, it's over. He's got this. And we don't need to end our day and our lives wondering how's this all going to work out. Now, this might not sound like the proper way to end a sermon or especially to go into the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. But I want us to think and I want us to get a new category in our head and start start pushing out room for who Jesus is because Jesus said of His Supper when He started it, I want you to do this until when? I come. We do this. We remember the blood and the body of Christ until Jesus comes back and just busts out all over this world. We do this because we're not there. We're not on the white horse with everything being good and happy and awesome and victorious. We do this. We take the Lord's Supper. We have to remember the body and blood of Christ because we're still fighting who we are as Christians and sinning. We're not there yet. But we need to be thinking more about there. And I want to be there. And my mind needs to be there with Jesus, the victor. Almighty God, Jesus Christ. Unless in my little huddle, weed-filled, confused world. So we take the body and the blood of Christ. We remember this and assemble until then. So as you take that cup, as you take that bread today, 
as we pray, as we reflect, as we repent, I want you and I want to myself. Remember, we're doing this because we're not there. But that day's coming. There will be the day of the return of the King. And as Tolkien said it, peace came over the sons of men. It will come, but it's not here yet. Let's pray as our men come forward to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Jesus, may we not be guilty of mocking-worthy prayers. We pray to You as a helpless, actionless, powerless, good person somewhere out there. May we pray to You. May, May we come in Your mediation as children of the King awaiting Your return, praying that it's soon, and fighting out the last vestiges in our heart, the enemy who tries to keep seducing us into His kingdom. Father, forgive us for not giving You Your due, Jesus. For acting like you're dead and not seeing our sin. For acting like you're but a man and not knowing our thoughts. God, please, may we know you. As they said it in the book of Acts, it's that you're this same Jesus that's alive. In Jesus' name, amen.